0: Hi there, and welcome to The State of It. I'm Winston, and I'm here with my father.
1: And I'm here with my son, who I'm going to call Winston.
0: <laughs> Today, we're going to be discussing a bit about Britain's defence. But before that, I'm going to tell you a bit about Dad. Dave has been involved in history and geopolitics for three decades, having authored two books. The first, Breaking the Code of History, focuses on the key processes of, of human social structures. The second, Lions Led by Lions, re-evaluates Britain's leadership and role in World War I. A third book, Road to Wars, is set to be released in 2021. He's also made appearances on CNBC. He currently authors a blog from his website, www.davidmurren.co.uk, where there's more on his life, views and work. So, first episode, how are you feeling? More comfortable than you are, myself. Oh, thank you, Dad, <laughs> thank you. What can I say? <laughs> first time for everything. <laughs> anyway, let's get to it. So, first question. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace in December described the UK as the keystone of European strategy and Europe's leading defence power. Do you think that's an exaggeration or a statement of fact?
1: I think actually it's close to a statement of fact. In terms of military power, France's are only comparable. France is committed to continental power, whereas Britain in its Brexit form is committed to global power because our trade route and our new paradigm is a return really to the British Empire's model of resourcing from a global maritime setup. So in many ways, our even if we were of comparable force structures, which one could argue we're not, um, although they are to some degree, our mindset means that we're no longer a continental um, strategic uh, entity we're much more a global entity that in turn takes us into direct conflict with Chinese interests around the world and it's interesting that at the moment when we manifest that Brexit choice and in its complete form in the past year we've seen Hong Kong ripped from the agreements we made with China and the CCP and really an overt demonstration of what China represents which is an anathema to a democratic power like Britain.
0: Do you think that France is stronger than we are militarily? So, okay,
1: if you, well, if you just run through the run through the the force structures, they have a very similar nuclear deterrent capability. They have submarine one submarine at sea at any one time. Um, they have nuclear powered attack submarines to support that particular capability. They have um, a navy which is probably less blue water and more sort of northern Atlantic. With the advent of our two carriers coming into service in the F-35s, we do enter into a very different paradigm of power projection. For the first time since we lost the Ark Royal, which was our last fixed-wing carrier capability, we are moving into the domain where we can project power anywhere in the world. At the moment, there are some caveats. Our fleet structure doesn't fully support our carriers. We don't have enough aircraft, so we have to invite the US Marine Corps to come and fly with us off our carriers. Um but nonetheless, when you think of the fact the Americans have eleven super carriers and we will have two, that's not an inconsequential number of um carrier r- ratios. It means we are significant.
0: But the French have four carriers, so surely no, the
1: French don't have four carriers.
0: Ah. <laughs> are you sure? The French Or have ha- they got converted carriers? No,
1: the French have two assault ships.
0: They um, carriers.
1: Well, they don't have F thirty five B, so they don't have the ability to launch fixed wing aeroplanes or virtual aeroplanes and their Charles de Gaulle is really a, quite a small carrier although f- full fixed wing capabilities and early early warning aeroplanes um, uh, which is what we can't do at the moment and we're having problems with our helicopters because it's not working properly which is the idea of putting a long range search radar on a helicopter so we have a whole lot of chinks and we haven't really integrated this new force structure and I think we're going to be forced to accelerate that program in the next couple of years as it becomes very apparent that the with China.
0: Moving on, on the subject of AI, Jeremy Quinn, Minister of State in the Ministry of Defence, said the United Kingdom has no intention of developing systems which operate without any human intervention in the weapon, command and control chain. Do you think the MOD, the MOD is right to not develop AI? Well,
1: I think that's a very interesting comment because you can always find how does a chain start? Well, you launch it. So you have a human launching the system, but then the system's autonomous once it's airborne and you know you fire a cruise missile and it's autonomous once you programmed it, given its core setting. So we've had these capabilities in an, for quite a while now. What you're really talking about is imagine a, a, you know, a sentinel in the air that literally flies around, detects the enemy, decides what's to do with it, engages or not engages, And so whether or not you have a a cutoff chain in that process is something that I'm sure at the moment we feel more comfortable about. But as the speed of reaction increases to swarms, to multiple threats, it's inevitable that AI programs and responses are going to become part of our defensive system. You can't stop it.
0: Well, if that's the case, what happens when an AI becomes hostile? and you can't switch it down. It ignores the kill switch.
1: I mean, I think the Terminator scenario is really concerning. You combine your autonomous weapon systems with a singularity and the singularity represents you know, the dawn of a sentient computer it's exactly the scenario we've all watched on uh, in the movies for a long time i think it's a very real probability that the combination of that singularity and sentient AI, or non-sentient but active ai in the physical warfare domain is a cocktail which is potentially very damaging for mankind
0: so is that a case of implementing ai but putting regulators in place or will ai overcome the regulators no matter what we do
1: well i think we'll start by having regulators in place because we want the cutoffs but you know you could imagine the singularity overriding the cutoffs because they'll all be based software based Mm. so i you know you're back to that terminator scenario and i do think it's it's something that whilst we are involved in an arms race and increasingly so driven by china You know, the byproduct of that will be singularities because of computing power increases, because we want to go and make our defensive systems more capable and faster, and we give them autonomous combat capabilities. And that's exactly what the Terminator scenario was. And I think it's actually something we really need to be very mindful of.
0: So with spending, in the 2015 defense review, there was revealed to be a £13 billion black hole in spending. And last year, the Public Accounts Committee claimed this could increase to 14.8 billion by 2028. How do you think Britain can best streamline defence spending and avoid these huge black holes in funding?
1: Well, I think, you know, we've been since the end of the Cold War. We've been in a cycle whereby um, the peace dividend, inverted commerce, has become something like a piggy bank where every time we want some money for something, we dip into the peace dividend and we've ran our forces down for almost 30 years. And at the same time, we've had a sequence of prime ministers who think that under the American umbrella of of dominance of the world, we could intervene in local conflicts like Iraq, Afghanistan, and then disastrously in Libya without completing the task. And so we've had a real mismatch between... This idea that I'd like to play with my toys, but actually not investing in their capability, which is really dangerous. And we've also had a process whereby the old adage, and the army's especially good at it, which is constructing your forces to fight the last war, not the next war. We've been distracted by the asymmetric conflicts of Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, Libya to some degree, where you can just involve yourself without loss of life, because it's asymmetric. And we fail to recognize that the rise of Russia and the retooling of um, Russian's armed forces, and especially China's rise, means we really face a peer-to-peer conflict. That's a full-on, fully, highly intense conflict, which the army just hasn't been prepared to do. And the Navy's adapted, and relatively speaking for the amount of budget they've had, they've had far more foresight, in my opinion, than the other three services. And the RAF is really a little bit behind, to be honest, in terms of its mindset. Um, and its idea of an integrated force structure in a modern, evolving, high-tech world. So what we've really seen is a rundown of our armed forces. We're now seeing a challenge sequence of, re- of revolutions in military affairs and there is a massive hole in our budget. You know, our current force structure doesn't work properly. And the money we've been given, you know, small amounts with the adjustment of Boris's turnaround, quite rightly on defense, is still not enough. When you spend so little on defense, you've run your current force structure down to the bare bones. And then when you face a sequence of dramatic revolutions in military affairs and the real parallel is not the second world war it's the first world war because war fighting completely radically changed from the day that the Japanese and the Russians started fighting each other where machine guns and barbed wire became apparent where battleships fought you know longer ranges uh, in different ways that was the, really the beginning of a much more intense form of warfare none of the European powers took that seriously um, and they learned some hard lessons in the First World War. But the innovation of weapon technology in the First World War was staggering. The rate of change, the rate of balance of power. And that's really the only parallel we have now in that the overturning of status quo with new weapons and uh, and systems is really where we're at. So not only do you need to spend money to maintain your current armed forces. You need a massive investment to find out what the next advantages are going to be and then deploy them rapidly. So I think we've turned our defence vision round, but we need to be spending £100 billion a year if we're really going to deter, you know, have some role in deterring Chinese and Russian aggression.
0: I know there are some who would say spending so much money on defence now during a pandemic and during a likely ensuing depression is a mistake. What would you say?
1: Well, you've got to realize that um, it's interesting that the Treasury has not a dissimilar mindset until recently, perhaps, which is defense is a cost. Well, defense is not a cost. Defense actually, when you do it properly, creates a military, military-industrial military complex, which means that you put money in to make weapons and you build your infrastructure, you, de- you build your R&D and your development, very often that then feeds years later back into the civilian world. So if you were just a continental power with a horizon of Europe and the waters around Europe I think you'd probably make three times your return on your armed forces in terms of what you put in and what you get back in the stimulation of the GDP maybe four times but Britain is unique Britain is is really a returning to its global maritime paradigm which is one where we trade with the world and the advantages of having a powerful navy that will protect sea routes and project power and support allies can be translated into trade relationships which create multiplicities on those numbers. So I would say upwards of seven to possibly even 10 times the input into your GDP that you spend on defence will come back into your system. And never more is that the case when Britain is new post-Brexit world. So I think it's not a cost, it's actually an investment which yields huge multiplicity over time.
0: What areas of defence... Specifically, the armed forces—navy, RAF, army—deserve special attention based on their role in future warfare.
1: (laughs) We've, well, we've got. What's really interesting is that, you know, the navy actually has done its best to think about the best of breed systems. So it, it, it's rather unique, Britain built a Type 45 destroyer after its Argentine experience, where quite literally a Type 42 could be saturated by four incoming um, attack on totards with their exorcets, and it was over. And they built the world's you know, for its time, people are catching up a bit, but the Type 45 is the best air defense destroyer of its kind. But it has limitations, which we'll come on to. We've We're probably, you know, one of the best two submarines in the world in the form of the Astute compared to a U.S. Virginia. And in some ways, it's got an advantage, in some ways disadvantages. but we're right up there. And our carriers are very unique. You know, we don't fly um, non-virtile aeroplanes on catapults and cats and traps, but we have created an incredibly efficient carrier. You know, over 60,000 tons, 700 people crew it compared to thousands on a US carrier. It's almost fully automated. It is a state of the art evolution. And so once again, we've been thinking ahead and we've been adaptive. And I think the Navy are really, you know, onto the case of underwater drones, surface drones and multiplicities created with small drone capabilities centralized around manned ships. So I think the Navy is actually there. It's, it's downside. Is that we can't afford many combat units. And so we've had this tradition of air defense destroyer or anti-submarine frigate. And in fact, I think, you know, from six and a half thousand tons to eight and a half thousand tons, I think we should be making standard ships that do everything. One ship will fight, will, will track a submarine, will act as an air defense system because they're too expensive to, to give partial capabilities to two. We don't have enough of them. So numbers and concentrations are issues. The Air Force really has, you know, been very slow, to be honest. You know, Jockster put the Air Force back years with its manned fighter program. It's commitment to the Eurofighter, which is not as good as an F-15E. It would have been half the price. Um And, you know, yes, we're getting F-35s. They're not the best fighter airplane in the world. The F-22 is. So we still need F-22s to work with us to penetrate airspace. So, I, I think that the, the RAF is actually not as good as it could do. It has no investment in missile defense capabilities, so we can't defend our islands with missiles, which is really what we should be. Look at the Russians and their SA 400s and the new systems coming on. They're phenomenal systems. They're like our destroyers and Type 45s, but on land. So, and the army have completely lost the plot. I have to say that, you know, never before since probably balaclava and you know raglan's leadership has the leadership been so poor allowing the army to basically get carried away with the asymmetric role and not see the rise of a new form of warfare highly intense you know technology-based drone-based and you know they're desperate to catch up but they don't have a vision and i think the problem is that the leadership of the army and i'm going to upset some people but i'm going to be blunt the leadership of the army are luddites. In a world of technology, in a world of evolution, you know, they come from the infantry and they come from certain regiments, which are particularly political, and they put politics before their service. So I, I, have a, I really feel the army has let the side down in a huge way. Um, and I think that they're going to need a, a major reformation to, to come to a new model army that's capable. And part of that process is, in truth, you know, we're going back to the Navy as our first line of defense. The, the air forces are is in in space forces defend the space above and allow them to operate in bubbles around the world. The army again to have to become really a a force projection capability, but which goes with that maritime interdiction role. But they also might have to involve themselves in a highly intense conflict in Europe because the Russians are currently a threat. So they they can't just leave their highly intense you know, a um, form of warfare behind them and drop tanks. They need a combination of an, an old traditional capability in Europe and they need an evolved modern light system, much like the Marine Corps adopting. They have a long way to go. And I think the first thing that they need to do is they need to actually cull their leadership because until they allow really innovative thinkers like Fuller and Little Hart, they're not going to catch up. You know, the era is very similar, actually, to the Fuller and Little Hart era post-World War One to World War II.
0: Moving on to cyber defense. Mike Pompeo recently blamed Russia for cyber attacks against the US government, um, with the whole solar wind scandal. And it seems like a bit of a trend with Russia launching a lot of cyber attacks over the past few years on, uh, you know, German parliament 2015, the South Korean Olympics in 2018, and the British investigation to the 2018 Russian nerve agent attack in Salisbury. So this isn't like a one-off thing going on. Do you feel Britain's cyber defense is up to the task of protecting our software? And nation against Look, Russian cyber um, attacks.
1: As the Russian attack on America showed, you know, the NSA is, you know, equally as capable as GCHQ. Maybe, you know, we might hope we're slightly better. But nonetheless, they strip bare the American cyber defences. And they now live with the consequences in only days and weeks after that attack of not knowing what's left in their systems. What Trojan horses sit when they want to go and get their systems to work against Russia. And they have a major problem. Um, I, I personally, this gray space, which is the cyber area of stealing IP, of infiltrating the opposite size defense systems, I think there's going to have to be some kind of protocol introduced that basically says, if you do this to us, we will do it back to you. But if you go further, it's an act of war because these are acts of war. Um, they just sit in the gray space. And in the past espionage was really what it was all about. But espionage um, could only take place in a limited sphere because you can only put so many spies on the ground in enemy's territory, so many ways of them having access and infiltration. The interesting thing about cyber is it really comes from that genre, but it's got you know, a factor of cubed greater impact and therefore it needs to be addressed in some international protocol because it is an act of war and what took place between russia and america really sits in that vein so so britain's talked about the development of offensive cyber capabilities as one of the qualities that it really wants to become the best in the world at well i think we just had a lesson from the russians and we have to make sure that that if they ever do that to us they just really never want to do it again
0: it seems like russia just attacks with impunity it's like cyber raids everywhere and over the past few years and reprisals seem few and far between why is that so,
1: so so it's more than cyber so if you go back to the cold war and look at how we survived it and it's difficult for your generation to realize this but mankind lived on the brink of extinction for two to three decades where a mistake could have triggered a nuclear war or an aggressive action and I often pondered what it was that kept us from from really doing it um, and, and annihilating ourselves. And the simple conclusions they came to, both America and the USSR were mature systems within the Western conflict, the construct of empires and Russia and its own. They were really twins from an old system that was breaking apart, like East and West Rome was at the time when they split and all of the people at the top had had really a memory of conflict this first war was foremost in their minds some many of them been servicemen they understood the cost of blood and they had inhibitions to really destroying themselves knowing that there would be a, nothing left so they always had that edge to go up to and the basis worked where if you went through your series of military courts the ultimate one was mutual assured destruction by every warhead you could deliver and there were enough to go around that no one would survive now, that's how we got through it, and at times we almost didn't get through it. It was very finely balanced. As far as the Russians were concerned, until the Falklands, they appraised capitalism to be weak, and one day we wouldn't defend ourselves, and therefore they could try and push us to the brink, and we might yield. That didn't happen, but it is happening now. I think in the West we've become really soft. We think that everyone else wants to be like us. We think that individual freedoms make us you know, more empowered, But we're not facing countries. We're facing countries that are led by individuals who are despotically dictatorial, who wish to constrict freedom of will because that's what they did to their own people to control them. And they will push and push and push and test the level of intent in the West. So one of the things I wrote about extensively was the danger that took place when Obama didn't do anything over the chemical red line in Syria. And the whole knock on effect of Putin dropping chemical weapons, or via Assad at least, and then the consequences of the West and, and Obama being frustrated at what happened, triggering the Ukraine you know revolution, which was a Western triggered revolution against Putin in his soft strategic underbelly, forcing him to act. It was it was madness in my opinion, because he could never leave Ukraine in Western hands. It was an encroachment too far. Then that pushed him the other way. And then the knock-on of that pendulum swing was a Salisbury attack. Now, one of the great premises in the Cold War is if I use a, a chemical weapon on you, you can use a nuclear weapon on me. I use a biological weapon on you, you can use a nuclear weapon on me. Any of those three constituted a group of weapons, which ultimately meant you got nuked, so they were never used. When Putin used Novichok in Salisbury, he broke that Cold War protocol. He was testing us, and May did nothing. Yes, you know, it's alleged we had a cyber you know probe and but the truth is nothing short of taking all of Putin's money in the west and his oligarch friends money is enough to respond at that level and the result is he used it again and that's why the Germans got so upset but most importantly this concept of failed intention failed determination to defend oneself in the west is clearly coming out and and so if you're Xi and you're rising, you're looking at the West and thinking they may have more weapons, but do they have the political intent to use them? And we are coming across as looking weak, poorly led. And, indecisive. and those are the conditions that lead up to misunderstanding and conflict. And the subsequent issues over the pandemic, which I suspect are not as accidental uh, or natural as many people think, is also probably a consequence of the failure to respond to the chemical weapons in Salisbury, because she would have seen if he was thinking, I'll game this out. I'll use a biological agent to produce a pandemic and watch the West eat itself alive. He knew for well that we just have failed to ever be decisive in our response. If you do it, just below, the waterline in that
0: grey zone moving on to nuclear defense you talked a little bit there about mutual destruction and what would lead up to that um, when it comes to nuclear weapons secretary general Jens stoltenberg this november said our ultimate goal is a world free of nuclear weapons and he's part of nato he's very high up in the organization do you think our nuclear deterrent is effective efficient or is it even necessary well, in this current world we live in?
1: Well, I, I think ultimately mutually assured destruction saved the world from conflict between the USSR and the West. Because in the end, any conventional conflict and war game scenario resulted in the use of nuclear weapons that took both sides out. And... Um, it's also relatively cost effective in terms of the amount of deterrent you get versus your expenditure on your economy as the Soviets found with a massive conventional force they couldn't sustain as the commodity cycle went down and their revenues dropped they ultimately went bankrupt so there's some interesting lessons there once a weapon has been introduced into mankind's arsenal you can never take it away ever. So it's with us. So think
0: disarmament's a bit of. a does, fantasy, does
1: it, it is a complete fantasy. Our issue is proliferation and not letting the Iranians get hold of those weapons. Uh, our issue. Why
0: specifically the Iranians, when many other nations that are potentially dangerous? Have so, so so so,
1: as well. so if you go and look at the, the the challenges of nuclear weapons, initially, the permanent Security Council were the old nations of Russia, China, France, Britain, and America, and in truth, they're. Um, if I measured their maturity by where they were in the cycle of empires, they were mature. They understood the consequences of conflict and these were weapons of last resort. And so you were safe collectively in having those weapons in in the hands of leaders that obviously cycled every few years in the case of the West, but they carried that continuity of thought. As we found out when um India and Pakistan started to go into the nuclear regime, the only thing I can find on record that, um Ronald Rumsfeld did, Donald Rumsfeld actually did that was constructive, was persuade when the war broke out between the Indians and the Pakistanis that the Indians couldn't do a first nuclear strike against the Pakistanis because they'd lose 20 cities and the cost of losing 20 cities would be unrecoverable for India. He didn't understand that. And he thought because he had a big population that they could survive it when Pakistan couldn't. They didn't have that memory. It's like teenagers in that giving them the most powerful weapons versus sixty-year-old men that or women that understand the consequence of it. So the danger is when young states that are expansive and aggressive and hold um, the value of life to be relatively cheap get hold of those systems, and Iran fits into that category very squarely. The Israelis have had nuclear weapons for 20 years, 30 years, and have brought relative peace to the region as a result. The Iranians would be a, probably the most unstable source of nuclear weapons. The North Koreans appear to be unstable, but the truth is they're a controlled state and the, and the Chinese control them. So they're not as wild cardish as people think, but the Iranians are truly would be a wild card.
0: Playing the advocate a little bit, um, there are some people who say in this country that... Britain should disarm first, lead the way, disarm them, and, and others will follow. Would that just leave us defenceless and politically weak? That sounds
1: like a great plan for suicide, myself. <laughs> and, and if you have to measure. if you Let's just, laughter aside, when you look at the person on the other side of the game of chess, if you perceive that they want to disarm and they would like a world without nuclear weapons but they're nervous because they can't trust you, then you could theoretically bridge that trust by doing it yourself and knowing that they would like to follow if they could do it safely. Under those circumstances, that strategy might work. But when you understand that the system in front of you is innately aggressive, innately in opposition to every value your society holds dear and finds it threatening because the freedom of thought and action is truly threatening to a hierarchical, dictatorial system, you realise that's not going to happen. And if they've also demonstrated continuity and aggression, then if you basically relinquished your shield, you would be committing
0: suicide. But do you think it's efficient? Do you think the way we run it is effective?
1: Look, those weapon systems are very expensive. We are, in in truth, we don't have an independent deterrent because we get our deterrent, and our tridents, from the Americans. So what we really, re- what it really represents is we represent um, a two-button system with the Americans and the French being the third, which means that if someone attacks, you know, one, even if you destroy two, the third will go, and there's there's a real validity in that. That separate decision-making capability. Our submarines are still as quiet as nuclear submarines can be. They disappear, so the deterrent is you know, is as safe as it can be. We are coming, however, to the period when um the size of our deterrent is an issue, because ballistic missile defenses can really have come an age. You can kill ballistic missiles, and if you have enough anti-missiles deployed, you could take out Britain's single deterrent. It's not big enough to survive that. So we might need to have more warheads and more submarines afloat at any one time to really make that deterrent work. Um, As we have in some way started to undermine the Soviet or the Chinese, especially not the Soviets, because their numbers are so vastly able to saturate whatever defense systems we have. At the moment, we have certainly put in place with the ABM capabilities on warships, the ability to create much bigger missile shields. And when lasers come online and they're operating in space, theoretically, you could destroy all of those systems. So, again, you know, the stability of mutually assured destruction is really has been undermined and challenged right as we speak. It's a much more complicated world that we face. And for an aggressor, all they've got to do is find one crack in your armor and they'll exploit it.
0: The world we're living in seems to be becoming, you know, it's a bit more tense than it was a few years ago. Trade wars, cyber attacks, and this month Russia sent a flotilla of ships to circle the British Isles. This kind of stuff seems to be happening more frequently and it's getting a bit worrying. So what do you think, in a word, is the biggest threat we as a nation face to our defence?
1: So I, 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 uh, you know, the, the topics that I write about are about the repetition of history and the risk of our failure to understand really what brought about cataclysmic events. My first example would be the perception that World War I was an accident. All these armed countries accidentally, by mistake, going to war. Well, that is extremely liberal and poor interpretation of an inevitable outcome when an expansive Germany sought to dominate the world. And it had to go before the Russians became the shifting balance of power and the enemy on their eastern borders they couldn't cope with. And if you go and look at the, the, the run up of war from the invasion of the Rhinelands in 36 to Hitler's invasion of the rest of Europe in 39, that was absolutely inevitable. If you understood what they were doing, they had to go even more so than Germany in 1914, because they'd created a total military society that we would bankrupt by 1940 if it didn't go. And so those lessons are with us right now and in the, in, in the form of China. China is following the Nazi four-year plan. It's now following Hong Kong and the clarity of really who and what it is, creating an internally-fueled consumer society. It's now storing and stockpiling resources so it can't be squeezed. And it's now militarizing to a completely different level. So history is repeating itself. And if there is a lesson from history, the Cold War stayed cold because of the force of deterrence. There is absolutely nothing in the Book of Hope which has any validity to think that we don't mean you any harm, so leave us alone. Aggressive systems expand and they perceive weakness as opportunity. Deterrence is the removal of that weakness and in effect, a knife to a throat as they wish to put their th- knife to, your, to the other side's throat. So, strength is our only protection. And in democracy, that means that unless we can defend ourselves and our right to speak and our right to be free, and defense comes through deterrence. We failed to deter the Second World War because we refused to spend money appropriately enough to deter Nazi Germany. We cannot afford in this process as America is in decline collectively in the West to fail to deter China. And so the number one threat is China with an ally of Russia, which is kind of forced onto its hip because Putin is despotically against the West even though he will be very fearful if he wins. And Russia is the only country free left with the Chinese. He'll know his neck. So it's no different actually from Stalin's equation with Hitler, strangely enough. I think it'll look like the Russians were right alongside the Chinese until the last minute, just as Stalin changed sides. So so the, the lessons from history are really clear. We should only be scared if we don't heed them. If we think this is different, if we think... The whole thing is just not going to repeat because who would repeat? And yet, if you look at the markers of Germany, you look at its compression and constriction of freedom of thought from Hitler's initial move into the chancellorship and the removal of what we would call good Germans, you know, and, and, and replacing them with this groupthink. And then, if you look at what the Chinese have done, the Chinese have done something that's, that's squared in comparison. They are truly like nothing we've ever seen, that they are a far greater threat. And yes, the power of that system is not just going to disappear in a few years, but there is a drumbeat to conflict and the drumbeat is the commodity cycle and the peak of the next commodity cycle is 25 to 27. So this isn't a problem for next decade or the decade after, this is a now problem. And so that's why I called my my piece the Now or Never Report, that Britain had to turn around and truly ramp up its defensive capability because we only have five years because that's when the Chinese would be forced to move under their own agenda.
0: Touching on the Now or Never report that you wrote earlier this year, could you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well its history came about because after the 2015 strategic offensive year, I just couldn't believe we had been under camera, that we had been so blind as to destroy what was left our armed forces. So um, over that Christmas period, I started writing how I would have actually done the defense review myself for the services, where the threats looked like to highlight the threat of China and Russia. And at the time, you know, a pair of inverted binoculars wouldn't have noted them um, uh, as far as our government was concerned. And I passed it around and there were a few hiccups and that was it. But I, this time, recognizing the time frame of the peak of the commodity cycle i felt an absolute imperative that that i had to do more so this year under the global forecaster banner and my minor nations, there's been a huge focus on recognizing the threat of china what china plans to do how it's operating the threat of russia and also where britain is in its brexit moment which is not an aberration it's not you know whoops a daisy we made a mistake Britain is in the Brexit moment because it's expansive, because it has larger horizons than it's European cousins. It seeks to be part of the world and integrated with the world rather than isolated continentalism. And that brings us directly in conflict or in touch with the expansion and the interests of China and their particularly different way of doing things. So we are we're at a critical juncture. And for a long time, our special relationship with America has been very junior, increasingly junior. After all, they displaced us as the foremost empire and power in the West and the world. But things are changing. America is in terminal decline. I wouldn't expect any more from Biden than Jim Callahan's premiership. Really just more problems and no change. And Europe is in a state of protectionism and more bond collapse. That leaves Britain as really the leader of the Western world to rise forwards with the reaffirmation of our democratic process, which we did through Brexit, our meritocracy, our social integration of races, and at the same time, our view of taking that as a thought leader out into the world. So I think that Britain at £100 million is going to be maybe 20%, if you're lucky, 15% of American defence expenditure. However... I think the role, it's a bit like a father in a zimmer frame. We'll we'll look forward to that. And then, you know, and held up by an energetic son, the combination of the two, I think the special relationship with Britain, as long as we step up and spend far more than we are, is going to be very significant in in the frontline defensive system to to push back the the aggressive intent of Russia and China.
0: Well, I think that's about it from us. (laughs) If you want to submit any questions please go to David's website, www.davidmurran.co.uk, where there's more information on his defence review. Send him an email and we'll feature it in our next episode. Thanks for listening.